morning, everybody. Uh, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11, that's where we'll be this morning. Uh, we'll also be in Genesis chapter 18, so we're going to be in two different spots. Uh, but if you're new around here, I want to welcome you again. My name is Ben. I'm the lead pastor here at Strong Tower. We're glad that you can join us today, uh, whether it's in person or online. Uh, we do want to thank you if you're in person for still wearing your masks the entire service. I know it's been a long marathon, but keep pushing. Uh, we will make it to the end of this, but it really is a big help uh, for us as we're here together that we're as safe as we possibly can be, okay? Uh, Hebrews chapter 11 is where we're going to be today. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11 through 12. That's it. Two verses in Hebrews 11. We're going to look at Sarah's story today as we're walking through uh, Hebrews chapter 11. And so we're going to go back to Genesis 18 and read Sarah's story as well, okay? Hear the reading of God's word. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. And over to Genesis 18, beginning at verse 9. It says, They, speaking of the angels, said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah your wife shall have a son. Sarah was listening at the, next, or at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years, and the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. And so Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out, and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to tag our text today, a wonderful faith, a wonderful faith. Let's pray before we dive in. Father, thank you for your goodness to us today. Thank you as we sung of just how you are the one who turns us around. We are so grateful that when we think about your grace and mercy in our life, we may laugh a laugh of cynicism. We may laugh a laugh of mockery at some point, but one day, one day you will turn us around and we will look back and we will laugh with joy. We will laugh with wonder. We will laugh thinking, how did God do this? And so we're grateful that you do that over and over and over again. And we ask you to do it again today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. In 1939, a man by the name of George Danzig became a doctoral student at the University of California, Berkeley. And he was studying statistics under a famous statistician, statistician, is that right? Uh, by the name of Dr. Neiman. And this man was well known around the world and he's sitting under his, his teaching in the class and uh, he was, it was early in the semester. And he's trying to get it, you know, George is trying to get his footing in, in the school and, and his schedule. And so he comes to this class late. But uh, before he got there, Dr. Neiman had wrote two uh, 
problems on the board, two kind of examples for the students, and, and there were these unsolvable statistics problems. But, of course, George, getting to the class late, he didn't realize that that's what was going on. He shows up in the back of the room, and he sits down like many of you probably did in school, late trying to figure out what's going on. You're not asking questions because it's embarrassing. And then he sees the, the problems on the board. He thinks it's his homework. So he writes it down in his notebook. He goes home the next day. He starts solving these problems. He starts working and working. It takes him day after day after day. He's working on just these two problems, and then he turns in the homework, thinking it's homework. Six weeks later, Dr. Neiman comes knocking on his dorm door. He's ecstatic. He's shocked. And then George answers the door, and George says, Oh, Dr. Neiman, I'm so sorry that that homework was late. I didn't mean for it to be late. You know, am I going to get in trouble? And he said, No, 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 you got it all wrong, George. These problems that you solved, they were unsolvable. How did you solve these problems? And he said, well, I don't know. I, I noticed that they were a little difficult. It took me longer than I thought they would, but to be honest, and he reflects later, he says, to be honest, I, if someone would have told me they were unsolvable, I never would have even tried. And there's something true about that, isn't there? There's something true about possibility can sometimes become its own self-fulfilling prophecy. Where there's this sense where Henry Ford famously said, think you can or think you can't. Either way, you're right. Either way, you're right. And that just, it seems true. Like in our American culture, we, we, we see that to be true in many different ways. There's a measure of truth in it, maybe in a relationship. You had a relationship that went really bad, and so now, you know, you, you look to your, to your future relationships, and you look back at that other one, and you're like, I don't know if I can even try to have a relationship anymore, because based on what happened before, it doesn't seem like this is going to go well. And so you, you have these expectations of an outcome that keeps you from even beginning. You could do it in your career, right? You don't have the, the proper experience, or something has happened before, your previous job, and and so you're looking to the future of your career and you think, I, I'm just not going to even deal with that. Look, look at what happened before. It can happen with an illness where you get a report from the doctor and because of what the doctor said, you give up hope of even trying to fight the illness. Right? There's this sense that it's true that if you don't even start, you won't ever get there. But it's also true that that, that thinking can get you in some serious danger. That thinking can, can get you into some serious, empty living. Because it's also true that our self-help culture preaches this. It preaches this gospel of good advice. Which is basically, if, if you try hard enough and you put your mind to something, then you should be able to do it. If you try hard enough in that relationship, if you try hard enough at school, if you try hard enough in that job, if you try hard enough with God, you should be able to do anything you want. And that works when it works. What happens when it doesn't work? What happens when you put everything you have into something and it fails? What happens when you tried as hard as you possibly could to beat that addiction and it's still there? What happens when you put everything you could into your struggling marriage and it ended in divorce? What happens when, when you put everything you possibly can into fighting temptation and you fall again? 
I mean, it's easy to endure when things are going well. How do you endure when everything's falling apart? How do you endure when everything seems to be failing even though somebody told you it shouldn't be this hard? That's where we come to this text today. We're we're continuing through Hebrews 11 and, and we're calling this series Enduring by Faith because the early church was going through some really tough times. The early church, when this, when this book, Hebrews, was written, was going through some extreme persecution. And the early church is thinking to themselves, we've been doing everything right. We left behind our old Jewish ways and we've come to Jesus now. We've followed this gospel that you were preaching and things got worse. Our life was easier back when we weren't Christians. And so people are starting to think, well, maybe we should give up Jesus. This thing doesn't seem like it's working. We're doing everything right, and it's failing. Life is hard. It's difficult. I don't know what to do. And so the writer of Hebrews writes this story to tell the people in the church to endure. And how do you endure? You endure by faith. And so he's giving these examples, these examples of people in the Old Testament who endured by faith. And we come now to Sarah's story. And Sarah's is surprising in many different ways. First of all, she's one of only two women in the whole list of Hebrews 11. So you've got Sarah and you've got Rahab. And we'll we'll get to Rahab in a few weeks. And, And so it's surprising that he includes Sarah. He goes out of his way to bring Sarah into the story here. But even maybe more surprising than that is if you know Sarah's story, it's not really a story of what you would call exemplary faith. I mean, Sarah is, is maybe the example of how not to have faith. Like, she, she's the example of the person who's constantly struggling with faith. She's the person who everything seems to not work, and she is struggling to make sense of how to trust God. And so I think, maybe out of the list, Sarah might be the most encouraging to us because she's just like us. I mean, Sarah is struggling, holding on by a thread to believe God. And so how do you do that? How do you believe in the midst of this kind of impossible situation when everything seems like it's failing? First of all, you've got to go back to the promise. And so if you're taking notes today, the first thing is the promise. Look at Genesis 18. Look, look back at Genesis 18 with me. It says this, They said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? And he, Abraham, said, She's in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years, and the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. Now, this is, if you're following in Genesis, this is actually the second time God has appeared to Abraham and Sarah. This is the second time after God calls Abraham to himself and he gives him this promise. We talked about it a few weeks ago. He says, I'm going to make you into this great nation and and through your family, it's going to bless the whole world. He gives Abraham this ridiculous promise. Well, then in uh, in further uh, along and back in Genesis 15, God is, is showing up to Abraham because Abraham is struggling with the promise. Abraham's looking around at his family and he's thinking, okay, I'm 75 years old. And I'm supposed to have a nation come out of my family. I don't even have a son. I don't have one child. God, how are you going to do this? And he starts crying out to God and saying, give me some kind of evidence. Give me some kind of proof that this promise is real. And so God shows up in Genesis 15 in in a surprising way. He shows up in this fiery pot 
And he makes this covenant with God and he, he splits the animals and we don't have time to get into all of it, but he splits the animals and he passes through as a fiery pot and he's saying to Abraham, he's saying, just like these animals were sacrificed, I will die if I don't keep my promise. And so he makes this incredible promise, shows up, reassures Abraham, and now in Genesis 18, he shows up again. But this time not in a fiery pot, this time in, in a very strange, mysterious way, he comes in the form of these three men. Abraham's minding his own business outside. He's, he's hanging out outside the tent and off on the horizon, he sees these three men walking up and he goes up and greets them and ho- you know, he's kind of hosting them as, as a good host and hospitable person. He, he invites them over for dinner, but Abraham quickly picks up. These are not normal men. These are angels. And in fact, one of them is the angel of the Lord. So Abraham then takes the hospitality up a notch, right? Abraham's like, okay, God is coming over for dinner. Let's make the best food. Let's make the best arrangements. Let's have everything we possibly can set up because God is coming to dinner. And so they start this feast and everybody's hanging out. God is showing he hasn't forgot them. It's been 25 years. And when he shows up, he makes it clear he actually didn't come for Abraham. This time he came for Sarah. And he says, where's your wife, Sarah? And Abraham says, she, she's in the tent. What do you, what do you need? And he said, no, 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 tell her this. We came to give her this promise. This time next year, she is going to have the son, the promised one, the one that you've been waiting for this entire time. It's going to happen now. And of course, Sarah hears that, you know, the Bible says that she was probably right up against the door of the flap. You know, God's outside while she's inside and, and she's trying to listen and hear what's going on. And she hears this promise. She overhears the promise. And, and it must have been the strangest thing for her to hear that and think, I'm 90 years old. Right? Abraham is 100 years old at this point. What, what are you talking about? This, this kind of promise is ridiculous. Imagine you're 90 years old and you go tell your friends the next day, I'm expecting. <laughs> expecting what? <laughs> I'm expecting a child. I mean, this is ridiculous. But it's been 25 years. The way of women has ceased from Sarah, as it says. And what that means is God is setting it up where a miracle would be required. It would be required. And so the gospel promise, we got to stop here and think about this. The gospel promise is always impossible. It's always impossible, right? That makes sense because our God is the God of the impossible. That's who he is, right? He's the God who makes the world out of nothing but his words. He's the God who delivers millions from the hands of Pharaoh's slavery. He's the God who parts the seas to make a way out of no way. He's the God who defeats an army of thousands with a handful of people. He's the God who tears down walls with just a shout. He's the God who calms the storm with a whisper of authority. He's the God who raises the dead back to life. And he wants Abraham and Sarah to know that he's also the God who gives birth through a barren womb. A barren womb. I mean, this, this is the kind of God that he is that he's saying to Abraham and to Sarah, he's saying, if it's not impossible, then it's not my gospel. It's not the promise, right? 
the promise of God is, is something that, that, that we can't achieve. If it's something that we can achieve, then it's not really gospel. It's just good advice. It's just another self-help uh, project. Right? It's not a savior. But, but the problem is we actually, as sinful humans, we prefer that kind of God. We prefer a God that loves the, the possible because we want to be the ones that do it. We want to be the ones who God comes alongside and He just kind of gives us a little boost along our life and helps us do the things that we were hoping we could achieve and do in our life and the dreams we had and the aspirations we had. And so if God could just help me out a little bit with this little problem over here that I got, because the rest of my life I've got pretty much handled. Like We, we prefer that kind of God because in the end we get the glory for that. Because we get to be the ones that are seen as, as the ones who are able, the ones who are powerful, the ones who are possible, right? We don't like a God who exposes our neediness. We don't like a God who exposes our weakness. We don't like a God that, that exposes our barrenness, our deadness. In other words, we prefer a God who doesn't preach a gospel, but gives good advice for basically good people. But that's not the gospel. It's not God. See, God only saves impossible people. God only makes promises that can't be done by us. He only saves the barren. He only saves the broken. He only saves the dead. Ephesians 2, Paul says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Right? God never saves the possible, only the impossible. That's the promise. And so if you're barren, and you're dead, and you're dull, God says you're in the perfect position for grace. If you're broken, and you're tired, and you're worn out, God says you're in the perfect position for grace. If you're overwhelmed by sin and temptation has got you by the throat and life is failing, God says you're in the perfect position for grace. That's where I want you. I want you where there will be no explanation other than only God could do this. The only way this could happen is if God shows up. That's when the gospel is required. But listen, when that kind of radical promise is made by God, it's almost laughable. And this is the second point, the laugh. Look at what happens in verse 12. Uh, verse 12 says, So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, Listen, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And that word pleasure there is, is speaking of sexual pleasure. Like, Sarah is 90 years old. She, she's talking about... The fact that, that you look back in their history and there's, there's so much baggage in the life of, of Abraham and Sarah. There's so much pain, there's so much hurt. And, and before you jump on her laughing, right, you got to go back in chapter 17. Abraham laughed before Sarah laughed. Abraham hears the same promise again just a little bit before and, and he laughs at God. And now Sarah has the same response. God, are you serious? I mean, have you ever laughed at God? Have you ever laughed at a promise and thought, there is no way? 
There's no way something like that can happen. There, there's no way God could, could do what he's saying he could do. I mean, this is what I love about the Bible. It's not fake. It's not plastic. It's not some kind of fabricated story, but it's real. It, it's exposing her own struggle with faith, her own real uh, struggle with doubt and wondering, is, is this really what's happening? Because I don't know about you, but after Sarah's done all she can, she's confused. I mean, she's tried everything. You go back and, and, and she was given this promise years before, right? But even before that, as a good Jewish couple, they were seen by the, by the society around them as you are, uh, you are something because of your children. Your children were a, a status symbol. Your children were your, your uh, community. Your children were your social security. Your children were everything. And here they were without any kids. God says, I'm going to give you a kid and it doesn't happen. And they start waiting. They're waiting. Nothing happens. She even tries to take it into her own hands and says, okay, maybe, maybe Abraham, you can sleep with our servant Hagar and, and we can have a kid that way. And, and she tries to do whatever she can. She's, she's worn out by all of her effort. And here she is, hearing the promise one more time, and it's laughable. And the Lord gets straight to her heart in verse 13. Look at what he says. The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? The Hebrew word there for hard means, it means wonderful or extraordinary. I mean, Basically, what he's saying to Sarah is, Sarah has lost her wonder. Sarah has, has lost her awe. She's lost her, her sense of amazement at what God was able to do because her circumstances had overcome the promises he had made and, and she'd completely lost a sense of any possibility that God could keep his promise. And then she laughs and she tries to deny it, right? She, in verse 15, she says, I didn't laugh. And then I love what God says, no, no but you did. I mean, God is great. He's so gentle, but, but intrusive. Like he, he's like, no, 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 you, you're not going to deny what's happening in your heart, Sarah. This, this is exposing the deadness in your soul. Sarah, don't, don't try to put up a wall and pretend like everything's all right. This, this is where you're at. And he gives her space to express that, to express the cynicism that's taken root in her. Right? I mean, what is cynicism except cynicism is the numbing of your soul. It's the numbing of your soul. Years ago, I, I had a, a pretty bad, well, to me it was bad, bad fishing accident. And um, some of you have, were around, were friends of mine when, when this happened, but I was fishing out in the uh, Gulf Coast area and fell and sliced my hand wide open. It was so much blood. It was terrible. Like we happened to have a towel in the car and by the time we got from the spot to the ER, the towel was covered in blood, just soaking blood. So much blood. It, I almost passed out. It was, it was terrible. But I, I walk into the ER and I remember the lady at the, at the front desk, she was about to panic because here I am walking in with this towel full of blood. She rushes me in the back they unwrap it, they look in my hand, and the lady says, we're going to have to give you lots of stitches, but before we do that, we have to clean out your hand because it was in the ocean. And there could be all kinds of bacteria and debris and stuff. And she says, the nurse says, it's going to be the most painful thing you have ever experienced in your life. 
because there are so many nerves along your hand. It, it is excruciating pain. She said, but the good news is it will deaden a little bit. She said, just a little bit if I give you this shot of painkiller. I don't know what was in it, but I said yes before she even explained it. And then I, I'll never forget her saying this. She said, and trust me, you don't want to feel this. You don't want to feel this. I mean, that's, that's what cynicism does. Cynicism is, is this numbing of your soul because you don't want to feel this. It's too painful. It's too hurtful. Right? Sometimes it's easier not to feel and, and just move on and pretend like things are happening and not be vulnerable. I mean, cynicism is nothing more than numbing ourselves with unbelief. It's a way to protect ourselves from getting hurt again. It's a way to protect ourselves from feeling the disappointment again. It's a way to protect ourselves from the vulnerability and the risk that's required to hope. And so we're cynical. And rather than take the risk of living by faith and trusting again, we laugh. We just laugh. And it's not a joyful laugh. It's, it's this laugh of deep woundedness. It's a laugh with, with this subtle bitterness. It's a laugh with nervousness that something or someone might require us to feel again. I mean, this, it's a laugh that's really just a wall. It's a laugh that keeps us a safe distance from the promises. I mean, let me ask you, what do you laugh at with, with a cynical laugh? What do you laugh at where you, you've just lost all hope of the situation. I mean, it might be things that, that are in your past that, that come up in the present. It might be things as you think about the future and, and you're judging it by what's happened. I don't know what it is. It might be a relationship or, or, or even someone else, right? You, you look at someone else who's going through a hard time in their marriage and you just laugh because you think of your marriage and how it struggled. And you, know, you, you say things like, oh, they'll, they'll see how it really is. Or maybe it's somebody who's, who's going through a hard time in, in their relationship with God and they're struggling and they're doubting and they're thinking through hard questions and, and you went through similar struggles and you came out on the wrong side. And you look at them and you scoff. I mean, think about it. Where, where are you laughing at, at the promises of God because of your experiences and, and you're, you're projecting them on somebody else? Because you haven't dealt with what's happening in you. It's cynicism. I mean, cynicism feels real. It feels true because it's based on real, painful experiences. Real, painful hardships. I mean, some of us have been through some atrocious things. Things that no human should ever experience. Things that are so painful it hurts to even have a memory of it. I mean, it, it might be things that were in the past. It might be things that are happening right now. But let me tell you, denial is not the answer either. What, what's happening here is God is intruding into Sarah's heart and he's, he's helping her to own it. He's saying, I want you to own what's happened. I want you to own that this has been hard. I want you to own that this has been painful. It's been shameful. I want you to own that. 
But I also want you to own your misplaced faith. In other words, you're, you're saying this has been real. It's been hard. What, what's happened shouldn't have happened. It's been difficult. But I've been trusting somewhere else that I shouldn't have been trusting. Listen, cynicism is really, or a cynic, is just somebody who used to be a believer. You want to be a cynic if you didn't already believe at some point. You believed at some point that this could happen, this could be better, this could be whatever. But the problem was your faith and my faith, when we get caught in cynicism, was in the wrong person. It's often in us. I mean, Sarah's coming to the end of her faith in herself. Her, her cynicism is, is the reality that, that she thought she could bring about this promise on her own, and it didn't happen. We believed in our own ability to beat this. We believed in our own ability to overcome this. We believed in our own ability to be better than this. But then we weren't. We weren't. And it turns out there was this massive gap, right? There's this gap between the promise of God and the problem that persists. And you can fill that gap in one of two ways. You can fill it with cynicism or you can fill it with wonder. That's it. But the gap is going to be there this side of heaven. The gap between the promise and the problems that keep persisting. It's either cynicism or it's wonder. And this is what I want to get at the last point, the, the wonder. Sarah's story has this ironic turn in chapter 21. If you'll turn there, chapter 21, uh, it says this. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. I love that. It's the Lord's doing. The Lord did to Sarah. She's the receiver. He, he did to Sarah as he had promised. In verse 2, And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Down to verse 6, And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. You catch that? God transforms her laughter. It was in the, in the hard time in chapter 18, she's laughing out of her cynicism and her hopelessness and her despair. She'd given up. And then God changes her laughter to a laughter of joy and wonder and surprise and grace and hope. And how did that happen, right? It's because God showed up in her life and he gave her this promised son whose name would be Isaac, whose name means what? Laughter. I mean, think about the rest of Sarah's life. She sees this little boy running around whose name is Laughter, a constant reminder of both of her laughters. A constant reminder that she laughed in God's face. But also, God got the last laugh. A constant reminder that God was faithful despite what she did. See, the story of, of Sarah's faith is not a story really about her faith at all. And the author of Hebrews picks up on this in summarizing. In Hebrews eleven eleven, he says, She considered him faithful who had promised. She considered him faithful. It wasn't the strength of her faith because she was worn out. It wasn't the depth of her faith because she was shallow and afraid. It wasn't the stability of her faith because she was shaken by her circumstances. No, Sarah's faith is an example for us, weak in our faith, struggling in our faith because it was God. It was the object of her faith that gave her the ability to endure. 
It was the object of her faith, this faithful God who always keeps his promises to do the impossible. See, God is faithful despite your unfaithfulness. Despite it. In the face of it. See, the birth of Isaac points forward to a greater promise fulfilled. Generations later, Abraham the angel would come to another girl. This time, not an old woman barren in her womb. He came to a young virgin girl by the name of Mary. And he tells this young virgin woman the same promise. You're going to bear a son and it too will be impossible. But this son would come not as Isaac would come. This son would come by the power of the Holy Spirit. This son would come not in a barren womb, but a virgin womb. And what does Mary say? How could this be possible? I mean, she all but laughed. And the angel gives her the same message that God gave to Sarah thousands of years before. He said, is anything impossible for God? Is anything too wonderful Is anything too extraordinary for God to do? Right? This son, Jesus, would prove to the world that nothing would be impossible for God because he came for the impossible in the face of evil laughter. I mean, they laughed at Jesus and his heritage. They said, can anything good come from Nazareth? They laughed as the soldiers stripped him naked before they put him on the cross. They blindfolded him. They beat him. And they laughed saying, prophesy, who beat you? They laughed as he was on the cross itself, saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. The psalmist, hundreds of years before, would say, kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. He laughs. See, when Jesus was lifted up on the cross, When he was on the cross for our sin and our misery, God was laughing too. Hell was laughing in mockery, but heaven was laughing in victory. Heaven laughs a different laugh. right? Heaven laughs because Jesus was bringing hope for the hopeless. It looked like God was losing. It looked like God's promise had failed. It looked like God forgot them and abandoned them. But if you look closer... You can see the wonder of how God was working. You can see the wonder of His work in their barrenness. You can see the wonder of His work in their brokenness. You can see the wonder of His work in their deadness. Because God was being faithful, despite their unfaithfulness. We need only to look. To look. Charles Spurgeon, uh, the great preacher in the 19th century, told his testimony very often when he preached, probably over 200 times. And so there's different variations. You know, I tell you testimony, different variations. My favorite variation is is one time he tells it like this. In 1850, there was a snowstorm, this massive snowstorm. And at this time, Charles Spurgeon, uh, he was young, like a teenager, and he wasn't a Christian, but he was seeking. He was trying to understand, and so he had been going to different Christian meetings, trying to understand what the Bible was about, and people were talking about Jesus. And so when the snowstorm came, he decided he was still going to go to church, even though lots of people couldn't make it. In fact, there were only 12 people at church that day, and the pastor couldn't even be there. The pastor was snowed in at his house, so nobody knew the pastor wasn't going to be there until the service got started. So you can imagine 12 people are sitting in church, everyone's looking around, the pastor's not here, all right, who's going to preach? They're all pointing at each other. One guy, I guess he was some kind of leader. We don't even know his name in history, but this man, some leader in the church, he gets tagged to preach. He had never preached in his life. 
never knew he was preaching until about five minutes before that, he walks up to the pulpit in this little tiny Methodist church, and he opens up his Bible to Isaiah chapter 45, verse 2, which says, Look unto me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. And for the next 10 minutes, this unnamed man in this little tiny Methodist church gave it all he had on the spot. He preached the heart of, he preached all his heart out and Spurgeon uh, recounts what he remembers of the sermon. And this is what he says, the man said as he was preaching. He says, the man said, my dear friends, the text says, look, that doesn't take a great deal of effort. If it ain't lifting your foot or finger, it's just look. A person need not go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool and yet you can look. A man need not be wealthy to look. Anyone can look. A child can look. But it says, look unto me. See, many of you are looking to yourselves. No use looking there. You'll never find comfort in yourselves. Instead, it says, look unto me. Look unto me. I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I'm dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I ascend. I sit at the Father's right hand. Oh, look to me. Look to me. And then the man sat down. And after the sermon, Spurgeon was sitting in the back row, contemplating what he had just said taking it all in, and the man, this, this man who just preached, walks up to him and he says, you look miserable. And the, the, the comment kind of caught him off guard. He just walks up to him and says, you look miserable. And, and after he's trying to make sense of, did he just say that to me? He just keeps talking, and this is what he says. He says, and you will always be miserable. Miserable in this life and miserable in death if you don't obey this text and trust God. You have nothing to do but look and to live. Can you imagine Charles Spurgeon, this unnamed man? He says that that was the moment that he gave his heart to Jesus. And Charles Spurgeon says, that whole time up to that moment, I thought it was all about me. I was going to all these Christian meetings thinking, what do I need to do? How do I get saved? How, How do I prove to God? How do I do enough? What do I need to do? And then at that moment, I realized I just need to look. Look not at myself, but look at him. Look at him in wonder. And I'm going to leave you with this. Let's look to Jesus. Look to him in wonder, in awe, in amazement, that just like Sarah, God would do something in us despite us. That at the end of our life, we'd be able to look, like, look back like Sarah and say, how could God do something like this in me? And just laugh. Not a laugh of cynicism, but a laugh of hopeful wonder and gratefulness. That God would save someone like you and me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for that good uh, news that we have that you are the one who, who moves in our direction. You're, you're the one who uh, is faithful despite our unfaithfulness. You are the one who sends your son to save despite our running the other way. And so God, may you work in our brokenness. May you work in our barrenness. May you work when things aren't working. Take our trust off of ourselves. Take our trust off of other people. Put our trust on you. 
that we might know the power, the power of our miracle-working God to make a way out of no way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.